0: Good morning, Grace. It is good to be here. I'm honored to be here with you. If you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 is where we're going to be today. We're going to be continuing our series, as Pastor Rod said, cross connections, seeing ourselves in the the passion story. And so we're looking at different figures that show up in the the Gospels at the end of Jesus' life as as we move toward the cross. And I'm excited to be here I've been traveling a lot lately for work and and traveled uh, three different times to california and so um, this is actually I brought a picture of me in l a x airport uh, so uh there you go uh, I don't know why Brianna didn't want to eat lunch with me, but uh, I had a good time traveling and uh The rest of this introduction is true and not fake like that picture, but uh, I did go to Los Angeles, and uh, I don't know if you've ever had to navigate the traffic in Los Angeles, but it was a little different than Bartlesville. Uh, It took me two hours to get from LAX to my hotel, and my hotel was in Los Angeles, and the taxi bill was quite steep for that two-hour drive, and so I decided to do this new thing that all the kids are talking about, Uber. I downloaded the Uber app on my phone and somebody said, hey, that'll be a lot cheaper for your ride back to the airport. And so I I downloaded it. I made a reservation. I didn't really know what I was doing. The lady at the front desk had to help me out. And as I'm waiting, sort of anxiously didn't know how the traffic was going to be, I got a notification from Uber to my cell phone. And this picture is a real picture, unlike the previous one. And it said this, Jesus is arriving soon. <laughs> Which I thought, thank God, right? Because I don't know if you've been watching the news and the, you know, Jesus is arriving soon. And the next slide, this was what I found really interesting. He was driving a silver Ford hybrid which if you've read the, the book of Revelation, I was expecting a white Mustang, but it was, apparently he's more eco-conscious than, than I was expecting. He's driving a silver Ford c Hybrid, and then here's the important part, just in case you're, you know, for, the, for your end time speculation, wait time charges begin two minutes after Jesus arrives. So... Just, just keep that in mind. And I was coming from a theology conference. The people writing with me were theologians, and I'm like, "You got to check this out!" <laughs> and uh, here's here's the takeaway from that. Apparently, there's more than one Jesus. <laughs> Apparently, there's more than one Jesus, and that's actually the surprise in Matthew 27. That's the surprise in Matthew chapter 27. Because I don't know if you know this, there are almost certainly two men named Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate in Matthew chapter 27. And so this week in our cross-connection series, we're going to look at the man who Matthew calls Yeshua Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. And we're going to ask this question, which Jesus do you want? That's the question that Pontius Pilate poses to the crowd. Which Yeshua do you want? Which son of Abba do you want? And it's a question that's relevant, not just in the first century, but it's a question in the 21st century that matters because there are different versions floating around in the ether of who Jesus is. Which Jesus are you waiting for? To use the uber Analogy. Which one do you want? Matthew twenty-seven. If you've got your Bible, it will begin in verse fifteen, and the words will be up on the screen. It says this. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So, when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, "Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called?" "'Which of the two do you want me to release to you?' asked the governor. "'Barabbas,' they answered. "'What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah?' Pilate asked. And they all answered, "'Crucify him.' "'Why? What crime has he committed?' asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, "'Crucify him.' When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd." I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, His blood is on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word. I realize depending on which translation you have, you may or may not have the word Jesus, before the word Barabbas. Translations vary, and I'll explain how that happened and why some of them are different in a second. But the first observation that I wanna make about this passage, this passage leading up to the cross, is that the death of Jesus is like a murder on the Orient Express. And that might seem like a strange point. The death of Jesus is like a murder On the Orient Express. And I don't know how many of you have read the classic Agatha Christie mystery novel published in 1933. It's entitled Murder on the Orient Express. And I have this in my office. I was kind of flipping through it this morning. A movie came out based on this uh, a few years back. And it's based on this, this detective series, the greatest detective in the world, Agatha Christie writes, is a guy by the name of Hercule Poirot. I practice pronouncing that because I don't know French. Po- Hercule Poirot. He's the greatest detective in the world. In fact, he tells people he's the greatest detective in the world. And he happens to be on the Orient Express, this train that's leaving from Istanbul and, and driving west across Europe. And there's a guy on the train by the name of Ratchet. And Ratchet, spoiler alert, I, I feel like you know it was written 90 years ago, so I don't feel bad about spoiling it. You, like You had your chance. But spoiler alert... Ratchet is murdered, and he's stabbed 12 times. And so Hercule Poirot is, has to like sort of look at who's on the train, and there's, there's all these people on the train, and they all seem fishy. There's the governess, there's the missionary, there's the count and the countess, there's the actress, there's the butler, there's the widow, there's the maid, there's the princess, there's the assistant. And they all seem like they're hiding something. And if you've read mystery novels, you know that's sort of something that an author does. They throw in all of these red herrings to make you think, like, oh, it was the butler. And at the last second, there's this twist, and it's, it's not the butler. And so, so Agatha Christie throws in all of these, these red herrings. But the thing that makes the Orient Express unique, and here comes the spoiler, is they all did it. They all committed the murder. They each participated because this guy Ratchet had done something terrible to all of them. And so Poirot says, I saw it as a perfect mosaic, each person playing his or her allotted part. And that's the thing that Matthew wants us to see about the death of Jesus. It's different because Jesus hasn't done anything horrible like Ratchet had done in the story. But Matthew wants us to see this about the story of, of Jesus, that, that no one, we could say it this way, no one can escape responsibility for the death of Christ. No one can escape responsibility. The person responsible for this killing is not just, it's not just Pilate or Caiaphas or Herod Antipas or the Sanhedrin or the Roman soldiers who, who drive in the nails or who hurl the whip. Everyone is responsible for the death of Jesus. And what's fascinating is in the ancient world, even the crowd gets a vote. I mean, votes are not a normal thing in the ancient world. Even the crowd gets to chime in. And in the story, it's, it's unanimous, which means that Jesus doesn't just lose a trial, he loses an election. And the people all say, crucify him. The people get a vote. No one can escape responsibility. There's a a secular writer, um, not a Christian at all. He's a writer, he's a guy by the name of David Sedaris. And you may have heard of some of his writings. He writes a book called Calypso. And in Calypso, he talks about the death of his sister who committed suicide. And he talks about this conversation that took place between his father and the rest of the family. And his father says, I don't know that it, her death, had anything to do with us. And Sedaris says, how could it not? Doesn't the blood of every suicide, he says, splash back on our faces? And I think Sedaris is wrong. I don't think that we necessarily bear responsibility um, when someone who we love commits suicide. But Sedaris is right about the death of Jesus. It's, it's not a suicide. It's, a, it's in some ways a lynching. But he even uses the same word in this passage. In verse 24, it's your responsibility, Pilate said. And all the people answered in this really chilling line. His blood is on us and on our children. Nobody can escape responsibility for the death of Jesus. Even the crowd is involved. And if you're a Christian, you have this deeper understanding of that last line. Because if you're a Christian, you believe that the thing that killed Jesus, it wasn't just this misguided governor or this misguided, this misguided crowd. Sin was the reason that Jesus died. Human sin. And since all of us are sinners, even we ourselves are implicated in this, in this action, this, this crucifixion. That, that line in Matthew, in some ways, was horribly abused through the Middle Ages, especially, and down through history. It was used against the Jews. It was used to, to sort of justify the killing of Jews as Christ killers and things like that. But if you know, if you're a Christian, you know that in, in one sense, the best thing ever is that the blood of Jesus has covered your sins, that you're atoned for by his blood. And so we are both responsible and redeemed by his, by his blood. No one can escape responsibility for the death of Christ. The second observation in the passage. In the second observation, I think we face the same temptation as the crowd. We face the same temptation. And the temptation is to prefer another Jesus to the real one, to the Messiah, to, to Jesus of Nazareth. And verse 17 says this, so when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas Yeshua Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so this passage in Matthew, it raises the same question that Shakespeare raises in Romeo and Juliet. And the the question is, what's in a name? What's in a name? And Yeshua in Aramaic was one of the most common names in the first century. It was very, very common for someone to be called Yeshua or, or Jesus. Barabbas isn't the name. Barabbas translates Bar-Abbas to son of Abba. It's a patronym. So he is called son of Abba. Jesus, as you probably know, was sort of famous as being the only person in first century Judaism that we know of who spoke of God, Yahweh, as Abba. He called the one true exalted God of all creation, Abba, which translates to Father, but even carries a more intimate sort of connotation than our word Father. Jesus saw himself as bar abbas the son of abba and so the question is well okay how come some translations call barabbas yeshua jesus and others don't and we're going to skip the uh, the greek lecture you're welcome <laughs> but most of us know the new testament's written in greek and we have these ancient greek manuscripts. And what they display is a remarkable similarity through the centuries, just just remarkable. But there are very small differences between manuscripts, and that's called a textual variant. And so in this case, some of the Matthew manuscripts say Jesus Barabbas was the criminal's name, and some of them don't. And so the question that Bible translators have to answer is which manuscript is, is right? And what's happened in recent years is there's been a shift on this passage that more and more scholars, like guys like Bruce Metzger and others, have recognized that Barabbas' name was probably Jesus, and those manuscripts that say that were probably right. And a guy by the name of Origen in the third century even talks about this. He says, yes, yes, these manuscripts say it was Jesus, but we've agreed that Jesus is not a fitting name to give to a sinner and so we'll leave that out, right? Clearly, he's never Ubered, right, <laughs> in the third century. And so Origen actually tells us how that, that name, Yeshua, got dropped from Matthew's manuscript. Probably thought it was a little bit confusing, which I think was the whole point of the passage. Which Jesus, which Jesus do you want? In many ways, Barabbas, the guy we call Barabbas, was everything the crowd was looking for in a savior. Barabbas was exactly the kind of guy that they wanted. He fought and killed people in a revolution against Rome. We learn that in the other gospels. He was this violent figure fighting for God's people. Meanwhile, Jesus of Nazareth says to turn the other cheek and to bless those who who curse you. Barabbas almost certainly wasn't from Nazareth or Galilee, which also probably played poorly to the crowd in in Jerusalem. If you're Jesus and you're from those other places, Jesus Barabbas was the kind of savior that they wanted. And Jesus of Nazareth wasn't. He wasn't. And so this raises the question, if that's the issue in this passage, where Pilate gives them a choice, which Jesus do you want, which Jesus are we looking for today? And the Uber story highlights the fact that, hey, there's more than one. Which Jesus are you looking for? Which Jesus do we want? Uh, I've just sort of highlighted, I think, some different versions of Jesus that float around in our culture. The first one is very academic. It's the Jesus of warm fuzzies. The Jesus of warm fuzzies is the Jesus who equates love, and we are called to love everybody always, but this Jesus equates love with universally affirming everything, no matter what you do. It's okay. The Jesus of warm fuzzies, he never speaks a word in critique of our actions or our motives. He's just offering sort of hugs, free hugs for everyone. And that might be the Jesus that our culture wants. But it's very clear when you read the Gospels, that's not the real Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. The Jesus of sort of warm fuzzies and affirming absolutely everything that we do or or think. Not the real one. The second one would be the opposite. Not the Jesus of warm fuzzies, but the Jesus of self-righteous condemnation. The constantly condemning Jesus. And this Jesus that you may have heard about or you may have seen on social media occasionally, he seems to equate truth and truth-telling with self-righteous condemnation. And it's very clear from the scriptures, this isn't the real Jesus either. One of the most astonishing things about Jesus in the New Testament is that people who were nothing like Jesus, liked Jesus. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes were still drawn to Jesus, even though he didn't just universally affirm everything that they were up to. We could talk about next the Jesus of my nation, of my race, of my political affiliation. Jesus becomes in many ways a blank canvas upon which modern people can just project whatever they think onto him, and seek sort of a backup for their, their opinions. We could talk about the Jesus next of my denomination, my, my theological tradition, who, who's sort of just very narrow in who are his people, right? Uh, sort of a, a theologian's guide to arguing on the internet. Everyone's a heretic but me. Will the real Jesus please stand up? Which Jesus are we looking for? I think sometimes the reason we miss Jesus is not any of these things. And our problem is more distraction. Uh, That we're just not looking up at all. Here we are in the crowd, so to speak, before Pilate, and he's giving us this choice, which Jesus do you want? And the rest of us are just looking down at our phones. (laughs) And we're distracted. And so we can't separate the real Jesus from the imposter. Distraction becomes an enemy in the Christian life. Which Jesus are you looking for? Which Jesus do you want? That's the the question that Pilate poses to the crowd. And in some ways this passage is, is tragic. The people choose the wrong Jesus. They choose the violent killer over the incarnate Son of God. And so we could ask, well, what's the good news in this passage? What's the hope? And I think the hope is this to be a Christian is to really get to grasp, not just to say out loud, but to grasp these three simple words I am Barabbas. I am Barabbas. Because what happened to Barabbas or Barabbas, as they would have said it in Jesus' day, is what happened to all of us. And what happened is Jesus took his place. Jesus took his place. Jesus took our place on the cross. One of the central teachings of the cross is that Jesus took the judgment for human sin that all of us deserve because we are sinners. And so just as he took the place of Barabbas, he took my place and he took your place so that we could go free. Jesus took our place. He took the penalty so that we, the guilty, could go free. There's sort of two aspects of of salvation in some ways. I brought a picture of Barabbas because in some ways, in the movies, he always just looks horrible, right? He's never played by Brad Pitt. He's never, he's always just, (laughs) they just drug some guy. He's just this, he's a horrible looking guy. But I think Barabbas is all of us. He doesn't have to look like some cold-blooded killer. Jesus takes our place. But the, the, the thing with Barabbas is we don't really ever know The Gospels don't tell us what Barabbas' reaction to that was. If he just sort of melted back into society, or whether the fact that Jesus taking his place caused him to change his view of this Jesus. There's two aspects of salvation there's salvation accomplished, where Jesus takes up human nature and he dies for all. For the sins of all, as scripture says. But then there's the need for that salvation to be applied. To be applied for us, for you. So that you are united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. So that Christ's work for you can can take effect. Jesus took Barabbas' place but we need to grasp that in our own lives, what it meant that Jesus took your place. So I've been thinking about this as, again, as I was traveling, and it's been a weird time to travel. I don't know if you know that. (laughs) And I didn't wear a hazmat suit, but I mean, just imagine with all of the pandemic fears and all of that, if you realize that you had this sickness and the sickness was not like, you know, COVID-19, but it was 100% fatal, 100%. The scriptures say the wages of sin are death, 100%. And someone said, I'm going to set you free from that, and the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to take the sickness into me, onto me, so that you can be healed. And that's a picture of what Jesus does in the cross. That's the cross connection for all of us. Jesus taking our place. And so my prayer for us as we, as we give, as we live, as we parent, as we work, as we try to balance um, f- being wise but not being fearful and giving way to anxiety is that we would realize the magnitude of what Jesus did for all of us, what he did for Barabbas when he saved us by offering himself. Let's pray today.